From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The federal budget gave a much-needed but very modest increase to those on JobSeeker and associated payments, but it didn't address that other important issue for the unemployed, how to help as many job seekers as possible to get into work, whether full or part-time. This, presumably, will be one of the issues canvassed in the government's coming white paper on employment. It's already, however, before the Parliamentary Committee on Workforce Australia Employment Services. This is examining areas of that system that need overhauling. Julian Hill, the Labor member for the Victorian seat of Bruce, is chairing that inquiry. And he joins us today to discuss the job market and getting people into work. Julian Hill also boasts a huge following on TikTok, the Chinese-owned social media platform that has been banned on official government devices. So we'll have a chat about that as well. Julian Hill, in April there were 528,000 unemployed and 830,000 on JobSeeker. Can you just explain for our listeners what accounts for this difference? At any point in time, there's a significant percentage of people receiving JobSeeker who may have their participation requirements paused. For example, there's around 10% of people on JobSeeker at any point in time who are actually just sick. They're there because they're doing chemo or recovering from a traumatic accident, so they're not really looking for work. And there's a very large percentage of people receiving JobSeeker, about 28% of people who are engaged in part-time paid employment. So they're not counted as unemployed, it's just their income's low enough that they're receiving a partial payment. Uh, To put it in simple terms, not all job seekers are unemployed and not all unemployed people are job seekers. Of those 800,000 plus, do we have any estimates of how many would be unable to work in any circumstances, for example, because of mental or physical disabilities and Shouldn't they be on the disability payment? It's a really important question because for too long this national debate about unemployment and long-term unemployment has been driven by the stereotype of the dole bludger. So if we're going to actually try and resolve these questions in a better way and make an impact, we've got to drill down into the characteristics of people who are unemployed. Um, As I said, about 10% of people are sick at any point in time. Some have said to the inquiry that they should be on a sick payment, not a job seeker payment, um, to avoid a whole lot of bureaucracy and complications and unfairness for them. Uh, About 28% of people do have some kind of disability, about 20% of people are partial capacity to work. Uh, But it's important to remember that the disability support pension is for people with a disability that will last longer than two years, that's treated, stable, diagnosed. Uh, Many people have either very low-level disabilities uh, or episodic um, issues, and we shouldn't be condemning them to life on a pension. Society has a reasonable expectation, and they have an expectation and desire to work. Now, you've said that the failings of the present system are apparent, and I quote, in the fact that while employers across Australia are now crying out for workers, hundreds of thousands of Australians, including long-term unemployed people, remain stuck in the employment services system. From what your inquiry has heard so far, how well is this system operating at present? Does it need root and branch reform 
or does it just need tweaking? Well, that's exactly what the inquiry is about. It is a first principles review, not a band-aid and sticky tape patch-up, which we've seen, I think, uh, over many years. We've got a red-hot labour market in Australia at the moment, and yet, it, uh, with employers crying out for workers, and yet that is due to a fundamental mismatch between uh, people who are unemployed and the skilled jobs that employers are looking for. Uh, we've got 53% of people who are unemployed have no post-school qualification, around 40% haven't even finished year 12. And so there's at least two, probably three, uh, many places, entry-level job seekers applying for every job that is actually available. So we've got that mismatch. Uh, but the sort of issues we're hearing are really fundamental issues. The system's been designed around the worst people in society uh, who are taking the piss, that very small percentage of people who are not genuine about looking for work, the worst providers who are trying to cheat the system, and everyone else is put in that paradigm. So uh, it's based on a flawed theory, uh, many suggest, of unemployment always being an individual choice, a failing of the individual, ignoring the structural factors that people find themselves in in their lives. Uh, we've got a very narrow set of objectives. We no longer have a labour market exchange function. We no longer have a skills human capital development function. Uh, we just have a work test function where we police social security obligations and think that somehow people then, if they're magically pushed ever harder, will get a job. But there's a reason that most people are long-term unemployed. They have barriers that need to be overcome. It's not because of the dull bludger rhetoric. The Howard government, of course, privatised the system. Do you think that that was a retrograde step or are the problems separate from that? Well, that's one of the issues we're looking at. We've had oh, getting on 23 years of longitudinal data now to evaluate one of the world's only fully privatised systems. Uh, a significant part of the caseload actually came back in last July in the form of digital online services, but all of the case management services are still privatised. Uh, we do have many peculiar features about the system. It's strangely divorced the more we examine it from demand. So we focus on conditioning supply, but there's very few links, direct institutional systemic links with employers. Uh, only about 4% of employers were reported as using the system in many parts because they get flooded with unsuitable job applications from people being policed by mutual obligations. We've also locked out those um, small local organisations, local councils, business chambers, not-for-profits who have enormous social capital in local communities and can help get people entry-level jobs, but they're locked out of the Commonwealth system. Um, so this, uh, the extent of competition is one of the issues we're looking at. That's not to say that there's not a role for contestability, uh, but it's too early, I think, to form our views. But they're exactly the kind of questions we're looking at. Do you think many employers are actually rorting the system in some way? We've seen providers, for example, in the disability insurance scheme not doing the right thing. We're not an investigation and we've said at the outset we're not going to be a complaints shop um, for be it participants or providers. We're not a complaint shop for the last procurement round. We're having that first principles look. But I'm aware from moving in the community, there's not a lot of love for the private providers. But it's easy politically to beat up on the private providers. Governments, successive governments, have to take responsibility for the system that's being created. Frankly, uh, Michelle, the providers are just doing what society has contracted them to do. They're responding to the incentives in their contracts. If we don't like that, then we need to change the system. They're chasing three-month, six-month outcome payments. 
There's no longitudinal analysis of what happens to people after six months. There's no objectives for secure work. They're doing what we ask them to do. Uh, one of the other issues in provider land also is the workforce. We've got a largely uh, low-skilled, uh, deprofessionalised, uh, mainly female-dominated, de-unionised workforce, uh, and that's an issue we're going to need to look at if we want to improve the skill level uh, and the sophistication of an employment service in the future. I think a few years ago, you used to hear a lot more talk about the challenge of getting long-term unemployed people back into work. These are people who don't have health issues or, or some other barrier of that sort. What can be done more actively to try to help these people? One, one thing I'd point to, as I touched on earlier, is to better link the system to demand. There's, there's, there's no point, you know, continuing to do the same thing over and over again to someone after two years and three years and four years and five years. You know, that's a definition of insanity, expecting a different result from doing the same thing. So we have to recognise that the, the caseload, to use that term, is incredibly heterogeneous. You know, it's some, it's somewhere along the way, we lost sight of the fact that the system is about human beings and people. And everyone has their own life story, their own backstory, their own barriers, their own caring responsibilities, their own mental illnesses, their own anxieties, their own labour market, their own way of being in the world at that point. And the most important quality for a successful relationship to help a long-term unemployed person is actually trust. We've heard that from the most experienced workers. You've got to build trust because the person in front of you has to become vulnerable at a human level to figure out what needs to change in their life to get back into work. And one of the really weird characteristics at the moment is we cast the employment service providers as both the persecutor, the policeman, and the rescuer. They're cutting people off from their income while they're supposed to be helping people. That's a fundamental design characteristic, and I'm increasingly uh, leaning towards a conclusion, we'll stop short of making that statement, a design flaw that we're going to need to remedy if we want the system to work better. You know, only public servants, many would say, should have the power on behalf of the state to affect someone's income, not a bunch of private providers who are actually being contracted to help someone. Uh, and we do have a lot of thinking to do as a society about how we treat and support those furthest from the labour market. You know, things like Work for the Dole, these compulsory programs, there's disturbing evidence that they actually make people less employable rather than helping them. So you would say that uh, perhaps Work for the Dole should go? Uh, we're receiving many, um, many diverse submissions on that. Uh, there's certainly a role for community work programs, but actually most Australians would be surprised to realise that the current Work for the Dole program that we've inherited is nothing like the one that John Howard set up. You know, I, I think you could make a reasonable argument that the program Howard set up had many positive characteristics, just an offensive name. Uh, there was group work, there was community engagement, there was community participation, there were things that made you feel proud about yourself that you could point to that you'd done, there was a skills framework put over it, there was pathways to employment. Now we have a $500 payment to a provider, $250 of which has to be given to the charity, and overwhelmingly the placements are in people sorting clothes in op shops or sorting coloured buttons. You know, these are not pathways to employment, and much of the evidence is they create stigma, shame, mental health barriers, and they stop people for those eight weeks from their job search activities or from getting skills that might help them get a job. So you know, we've yet to reach conclusions, 
but there's certainly a case to look at how we reform and make those programs useful that help people rather than harm them. Reform rather than abolish. Well, that you know, that's a frame which others will put. You know, I, th- I think we're still thinking our way through uh, what the right recommendation would be for those kind of programs. We are planning to have a look at what Ireland does, for instance. They've maintained a range of social employment programs, often against the OECD's wishes, because they recognise that a decent society has to provide um, extra help for people furthest from the labour market. Now, we hesitate to use the word unemployable, but there are people who you know, I know, your listeners know, and everyone in the community knows if they're honest, are almost, almost never going to get a, a job in a competitive labour market because they're late in life, their backs are broken from physical work, be it nursing or hairdressing or blue-collar work. They've got psychosocial disorders. They've got acquired brain injury from long-term alcoholism. Um, they've got trauma from seeing their children murdered in front of them. I've been helping one lady locally. You know, these are just part of human reality in our society and I think we can be a lot kinder to people and, frankly, more effective in supporting them into work, the evidence is telling us. Coming back to this point about trust that you were and are speaking about, do we need more case management in the system rather than the more general approach? We're receiving a lot of evidence that that is the case, that the system would perform better if it was more tailored to the individual But a lot of that starts, as I said, from mutual obligations. Um, Society, just just to dispel the scare campaign that might arise if I left that sentence unqualified, society has a reasonable expectation that people will make reasonable efforts to look for work while they're receiving unemployment benefits. But it's the nature and the extent and the efficacy of our current mutual obligations regime that we're examining. Um, We've heard so many instances, for example... New migrants, skilled migrants, who might have come as refugees. They've had fantastic jobs in their home country. They're skilled. But they need time to learn English up to a proper standard to be able to use that human capital. Instead, they're being pushed into whatever short-term labour hire job they can get, which creates this churn of economic insecurity and, frankly, poverty um, at the bottom end of the labour market. So, you know... I think, preliminary conclusion, there is more of a role for flexibility and tailoring in case management right across the spectrum. We need a varying intensity of support and service depending on where people are in their distance from the labour market, not a one-size-fits-all approach. The Employment Minister, Tony Burke, has been talking about uh, the use of wage subsidies to help get people into employment. What do you think the scope is there? We are looking at the evidence around wage subsidies. They do have a deadweight cost on the economy in that uh, the money invested doesn't largely create jobs. It creates a substitution, perhaps encouraging, seducing, supporting employers into giving someone a go and getting them back in the labour market. Uh, The previous government rolled all the wage subsidy programs into a, a sort of consolidated employment fund that now the employment providers pick from. That was to cover up, frankly, the size of a cut that they made. Uh, We do need to make sure using wage subsidies, and they do have a place that they're targeted to those who most need help, not used as a substitution or a wrought by employers and sometimes um, uh, unethical labour hire firms. I say unethical, not all labour hire firms operate like that, um, but that they're not used as a a cheap rent labour scheme for work that should be done at full rate. So they have a place... But the question is always how you target them, um, and we're having a look at that.
To what extent is straight-out ageism a problem in getting people in their 50s, early 60s who've been perhaps retrenched back into the labour market? And is this more of a problem for men or women or equal? It's a big problem. Um, It's also a problem that's incredibly difficult to identify um, and quantify Uh, But the Age Discrimination Commission, the Human Rights Commission, many bodies have uh, illustrated that this is a real thing and everyone knows it. Everyone in the real world knows that that is an issue. Um, In terms of the male-female sort of dynamic, I think the point that I'd make um, from the evidence we've seen is not so much that older women or older men are discriminated against any more or less because of their gender, but there's a particular compounding impact on women because of generally time out of the workforce for many years raising children and a lack of skills for women that are coming through in the older cohort at the moment. So it's a compounded disadvantage if you've had 20 years raising kids and you haven't got a TAFE qualification or a university degree, then by the time you get to 45, 50, it's the combination of ageism and a lack of employment history and relevant skills that is causing a deeply worrying increase in the rate of long-term unemployment of women over 45, uh, who are certainly one of the groups that the committee's most concerned about when we look at the data. So what can you do about this? Uh, In terms of ageism itself, to be frank, if anyone has any great ideas on how you magically wish ageism out of our human society, I'd love to hear about them. I don't honestly think that's a problem which we alone or any parliamentary committee can solve. It's a societal issue. Uh, You know, there's a range of things that good companies are looking at to eliminate that age bias in terms of not putting birth dates on CVs, you know, blind um, shortlisting, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But in terms of long-term unemployment for women, uh, early intervention, which is the philosophy behind, uh, I think, the replacement program for Parents Next that um, the government has committed to. We made a recommendation to abolish the previous government's Parents Next program and recreate it as a more supportive, not punitive program. But early intervention to support young parents to not lose touch with the education system or workforce is one of the most important ways we can prevent this problem 10 and 20 years from now continuing. Well, I saw in the uh, report that you issued on that scheme that you said that there were mixed representation. Some people thought it was very useful, others condemned it strongly. So the government's getting rid of that scheme and going to put in place another one. We don't know the shape of the successor. What should the successor look like? I'm obviously not going to preempt the the detailed design process and the consultation, but we outlined in our report a few Um, key foundational principles. It should be supportive, not punitive. Uh, It should not be tied up in red tape for support workers or for parents. People shouldn't have their payments suspended or cancelled for missing an activity. Uh, We identified no positive social good or public policy purpose for leaving often vulnerable single parents without an income payment for days or weeks. And it should meet people where they're at. You know, I spoke to women right around the country who said, This program has positively changed my life, but the anxiety that's provoked by the reporting and the compliance is horrific. Uh, Positive stories, uh, you know, some people, some women, I spoke to a woman up in Cairns who had 
four kids, had been at home for 10 years and didn't realise until she went to the program she was suffering from enormous social anxiety. She hardly ever left the house. So the pro- it was the program, the support worker, that helped reconnect her in. She's finished a TAFE certificate and is now working and feels proud of that. And we've got so many stories like that, but it's got to be in a supportive frame that meet people where they're at, support them into skills in education so they're then ready to participate and get good, secure work that fits their caring responsibilities. Again, it sounds as though it comes back to more active and individual case management. Absolutely. And we seem to have forgotten that employment services, pre-employment programs are human services. They have to be designed and tailored to the human being sitting in front of the support worker, um, not just putting people in a one-size-fits-all box with KPIs designed from Canberra. Um, You know, I'm a big fan of Canberra bureaucrats. Actually, I was a proud public servant for many years. Um, Good societies have good public services, uh, but we do need to make sure that our human services keep the human being in the centre and allow the frontline workers to adapt the service to the person sitting in front of them, not be straight-jacketed by rules that are totally inflexible. We've got a lot of migrants coming in, a a catch-up phenomenon after COVID, some 1.5 million over five years. Is this going to make it more difficult for unemployed people to get back into the labour force, or do they have nothing to fear from this? Uh, The short answer is no, but I'll just explain. We do need to be driven in the debate, which Peter Dutton's trying to drum up by facts, not fear-mongering. The pandemic resulted in border closures and the bulk of the migration we're expecting this year and next year is catch-up migration because the borders are reopen and it'll return to normal levels. Um, Significantly the return of international students, the government's bringing back a work hours cap from July to limit the number of hours that international students can work. The previous government's uncapped work rights has been a disaster. It's corrupted the student market and led, many would say, um, to problems domestically. Uh, Many people also actually didn't leave Australia during the pandemic. So some of that 700,000 is a statistical quirk. If you're here, I think, don't pin me on this, but I think it's 12 months out of a 16-month period, then suddenly you count in the net overseas migration figure. Uh, many of those, 100 to 200,000 of those people, their visas are coming to an end, so they will leave Australia. Um, so it's a statistical quirk. We inherited um, nearly a million visa applications backlogged in home affairs. And so, again, many of these people are the partners of Australians, husbands, wives, uh, partners who've been waiting sometimes for years to come here. They'll just, they're not adding to housing, they're not you know, creating an employment problem. But to wrap it up, permanent migration is capped. We're trying to swing the pendulum back to being a proud permanent settler society and uh, not rely on temporary migration. Uh, Migration in aggregate adds to economic demand, creates jobs, but we've got to get the skills mix right. And so when you bring it back to the labour market now, employers are crying out for highly skilled workers, which is the focus of our migration program. The long-term unemployed caseload overwhelmingly don't have the skills for those jobs and need to be supported to get them. Uh, But people should have nothing to fear that the focus on skilled migration uh, is going to in any way harm the opportunities for long-term unemployed people. It's chalk and cheese and we need to do different interventions to support people back into work. Well, just on this question of skills more broadly, you've mentioned TAFE um, a couple of times. Are you confident that the system the employment services system at the moment is directing people 
into relevant TAFE courses so it maximises their opportunity of employment? No, I'm not at all confident in that. Um, we don't think that the system is working well enough to focus at a more granular or regional level, say, on supporting and encouraging and incentivising people into training and skilling for the jobs that are on offer. We hear too many reports of wasted training, make-work training. Um, the government's fee-free TAFE program is terrific. Already this year we've supported 150,000 people into fee-free TAFE places and for unemployed people they can also get the extra help for the out-of-pocket costs from their provider. It's a supply-side initiative for the economy. Um, but you know, one of the things we'll be looking at recommendations around is how we better plug in the Jobs and Skills Australia data at a regional level uh, to drive people and support them into training that actually leads to jobs that are on offer. Just before we finish, a couple of uh, questions on different topics. You've taken an interest in artificial intelligence and I think gave uh, a speech in part written by AI. What are your concerns about the impact of artificial intelligence and does the government have to be more active in planning for, for worries? Uh, yeah, I did use the chat GPT gag back in February um, to frankly draw attention to a serious policy point. So thank you for noticing. Uh, artificial intelligence is set to transform developed human societies and impact swathes of developed economies and as well as government service delivery, it'll be non-traditional jobs in many cases, knowledge jobs, graphic designers, journalists even, as they say, artists and others uh, who will also be impacted. There's a positive though. So there are community anxieties. We are right to be worried about impacts in many areas, but it's also an enormously positive thing and we should be expecting governments to deploy the best technology to free up resources for other things, make better decisions, better target services. Uh, it has the potential to unleash a wave of productivity across the economy. But there are also negatives um, that we need to focus on. Loss of jobs in some areas, discrimination bias. I think we, we need to be worried about the, the use of AI uh, for things like hiring and lending and even renting. Many people in my electorate, one of the most disadvantaged areas of Melbourne, I'm worried with the use of AI for people trying to apply for a house. They'll never get their application on the desk of the real estate agent. So, you know, society's got well-established values and norms that we've put in those decisions, anti-discrimination law. I use that as an example where we're going to need policy and regulatory action to preserve our way of life and the values and the fairness that we've built up in Australia. Um, administrative frameworks post-robo-debt. We don't want public, services to, public servants to be terrified of using technology. We need to get the right frameworks in to preserve accountability and transparency. So I'll give you those two examples. There is, though, a governance and a capability gap in our country. You know, it can't beat around the bush. We have the opportunity, though, to learn from the approaches of the United States or the UK's recently issued a white paper, the EU's about to adopt their AI Act, even China is adopting a more FDA kind of style, um, TGA style approach of certifying that the technology is safe before it's released. So those four large global jurisdictions are all taking very different approaches and we have the opportunity to learn from that. I'm not going to preempt what the Minister um, will say uh, in, in future, but I'm very comfortable from the discussions that I've had with Ed Husick that he's on top of this and that the government is um, 
taking a sensible approach. More, more will be said. I'm not going to preempt or verbal the minister, I think, at this point. Very wise. Very wise. <laughs> Let's finally talk TikTok. The government's banned TikTok for official devices over fears of uh, information being compromised as it's owned by a Chinese uh, company. The department does, the Attorney General's department does allow some exemptions. Now, you're very active on TikTok. You're still active, big following. Why is it important to you and how are you still on it? Well, my staff always joke I'm very popular amongst the people who haven't met me, I suppose, many on TikTok. Uh, But look, the rule is that uh, government-issued devices, it shouldn't be put on unless there's an exception. I've actually always been aware of the security concerns from when I set up a TikTok account. It was just an experiment for actually with the work experience kid about two years ago. Uh, and I've had it on a separate device. So I've always complied with the rules, so no change was necessary. So you didn't need an exemption? Didn't No, no it's never been on my government um, you know, parliamentary established phone. I, I take security seriously. I'm actually a member of the Parliamentary Joint Committee for Intelligence and Security and get briefings in, you know, in that intelligence world. But I think it's a dilemma. Politicians have to meet society, meet people, meet citizens where they are, whether that's down the railway station, outside the shops, at the senior citizen centre, at a workplace, at a school. And millions of Australians hang out and consume information and engage digitally, online, on social media. People are listening to us on your podcast, hopefully, right now. They've got this far. Um, So I think MPs have a responsibility to engage with people where they are, and particularly for young people, but not only young people. I've had feedback from people in my electorate and right across the country who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s about things that I've spoken about, posted about. Um, So, you know, that's how I manage the dilemma. I take security seriously, but have a crack at engaging with people. A balance. A balance, indeed. One issue that you've taken an interest in is the Julian Assange one. His wife addressed the National Press Club this week and she claimed that, and I quote, this is the closest we've ever been to securing Julian's release. And she called on the Prime Minister to do even more to try and bring him home. We know representations have been made. What do you think about this? Do you think that, in fact, he will be freed soon? I really, really hope so. And there are more positive signs, as Stella's reflected. Um, I've been outspoken on this for years, and my view has always been that this was a political decision to bring this prosecution, and it needs a political resolution led by the US government. Uh, But I also understand that there's options to negotiate a resolution, Um, It's very welcome in recent weeks that public support now is snowballing and that even Peter Dutton, to his credit, finally has backed in the Prime Minister's position that enough is enough and the matter needs to be brought to a close. I've organised and facilitated a meeting with United States Ambassador to Australia, um, Carolyn Kennedy, and I thank her for that meeting. It was a good discussion, an honest, um, robust discussion, and we got a good hearing. Um, I'm not going to verbal her, obviously, but... Uh, She was, I think, forward-leaning and I'd be confident understood the increasing complication that this issue is having in our critical relationship with the United States when we need to be focused on shared strategic challenges, shared economic challenges, and that this is harming public opinion, frankly, about the US alliance. I think we conveyed that point. There's a lot of ongoing dialogue at the moment that we've had since that meeting uh, with the family uh, and with the lawyers, and it can't happen soon enough. 
whether it's an end to the prosecution, as I would call for by the US government, or whether it's a negotiated resolution, uh, there is, I think, a willingness to try and resolve the matter, and that's incredibly welcome. Um, I'm actually planning to visit London, I think, uh, in, near the end of June, and I've spoken to uh, Jen Robinson, his legal counsel, about seeking to visit Julian in Belmarsh. Um, I hope that he's not there then, and that I can't have, I can't make, and don't have to make that visit. Julian Hill, thank you very much for talking with us, uh, especially about a very important parliamentary inquiry. By the way, when does it report? Uh, November, December. And uh, I think a, a lot of people will be interested in that. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back again soon, but goodbye for now. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes.